1: Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. Member FDIC. Copyright 2024 J.P. Morgan Chase and Co.
0: The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers. The place is East Berlin, the year 1983. We're in an interrogation room in the offices of the Ministry of State Security, known as the Stasi. There's a filing cabinet, a dirty neck curtain at the window, a view outside of grey concrete blocks. In the middle of the room, there's a cheap wood veneer desk. On it is a phone, an intercom box with an array of call buttons, and a big old-fashioned reel-to-reel tape recorder. Behind the desk is the interrogator. He wears a uniform, a grey military jacket, a shirt and tie, a peak cap placed carefully on the desk beside him. He's a committed communist who's sworn an oath to defend the German Democratic Republic, the GDR, commonly known to the rest of the world as East Germany. The interrogator has the authority to do more or less whatever he wants and he doesn't have to worry about privacy. He can have people followed, listen to their phone calls, break into their apartments, arrest them. Usually, he's interested in dissidents, political types who meet to talk about democracy or the environment or make plans to escape to the West. But today, he has a different kind of problem on his hands. Sitting at the end of the desk, in front of the microphone, is a skinny teenage boy. He has bleached spiky hair, a dog collar, and an old suit jacket with an A for anarchy spray-painted on the back. The kid is something completely new, something never before seen in the GDR. He's a punk. Everyone calls him Pankow, after the North Berlin neighbourhood where he comes from. And he's the lead singer of a band, East Germany's very first punk band. They're called Planlos, which you could translate as aimless, having no plan. By most standards, they're barely a band at all. But to the Stasi, they're a threat to the very foundations of the state. This is Into the Zone, a podcast about opposites and how borders are never as clear as we think. I'm Hari Kunzru. This episode is about government power and individual liberty. It's about how you look in public and what you think in private, and what it was like to live in a country that wanted to abolish privacy altogether. And... It's about one of the most powerful binary oppositions in modern history, the Cold War.
2: In Mitarbeiter werde. Und die haben ja patriarchal gedacht. Also die haben ja irgendwie gedacht, okay, Berlin ist das Zentrum in Ostdeutschland. In Berlin gibt es eine Punkband, planlos. Die sind sozusagen die führende Band.
0: That's what Pankow sounds like now. His real name's Michael, but everyone still calls him by his old nickname. And he still lives in the neighbourhood of Pankow. He's telling me about the Stasi, how they thought in a very top-down way. The word he uses is patriarchal. The Stasi reasoned like this. Berlin is the centre of East Germany. In Berlin, there's one punk band, Planlos. Therefore, they are the leading band and the singer is its head. If we can get him then we can neutralize the threat of punks. In that interrogation room in 1983, the Stasi officer has one goal. He wants to turn Pankow into an informer for the state. The officer thinks if he can get this one kid to work for him, then he'll be able to control the whole punk movement. The officer will be a hero. They'll probably give him a medal. I grew up during the Cold War. If you weren't around at that time, it's hard to imagine the degree to which the Cold War organized everything, the whole world, into one big us versus them. You knew you were on one side. On the other, there was a sort of mirror world, totally different. And of course, the two worlds had nuclear weapons pointed at each other. It was madness. One summer, when I was 15, I went on an exchange programme, staying with the family in West Germany. One day we went to the border, somewhere out in the country, to look at the barbed wire fence and the watchtowers. It was a weird feeling. We'd read George Orwell's 1984 in school, and I imagined on the other side of the wire was a grey world where everyone had to be exactly alike. But all the same, I was curious, if I'd been a bit older... I would have wanted to cross over to see for myself. Because it truly was a different world. For the unlucky inhabitants of the eastern half of Germany, the horrors of the Nazi period were followed by the Soviet occupation, then the regime of the GDR. The GDR was governed on totalitarian lines. The Communist Party controlled everything, including where you worked or went to school, how you spent your leisure time, Berlin was central to the identity of both East and West Germany. Though the city lay deep in East German territory, it had been divided just after the war. The city was split in two. West Berlin was connected to Western Europe only by a long walled off highway. West Berlin was an outpost, like a probe stuck into the side of the Eastern Bloc. In 1961, the East German government built what it called the Antifascistische Schutzwall, the Anti-Fascist Protection Wall, to separate West and East Berlin. The government said the wall was to keep its citizens safe from the fascists in the West, but everyone knew it was really to keep them from leaving. The East German communist leaders had lived almost unimaginably hard and terrifying lives. They'd lived through Stalinist purges, the Gulag, the Nazi concentration camps, Their reality was paranoid and violent, and they were determined that their enemies would never get the jump on them. So they set up a sprawling domestic intelligence service, dedicated to watching the citizens for the slightest sign of dissent. The Stasi had informers everywhere. An informer could be your colleague at work, one of your roommates, even someone in your family. Add to the informers another 2.2 million party members who had a duty to report whether other citizens were following orders, and you had one of the most pervasive spying machines ever to exist on planet Earth. But right in the middle of the GDR was an island, a place the spying machine couldn't control, a hotbed of dissident culture and radical ideas. West Berlin. My name is Mark Reader,
3: I'm a music producer and I run the record label called Mastermind for Success, known as MFS, and um, yeah, I've
0: lived in Berlin for 41 years. In 1978, Mark Reeder was living in the north of England, in Manchester, dreaming of making it in the music business. He worked in a record store and he'd fallen in love with the sound of West German bands who were experimenting with futuristic new sounds, bands like Can, the Cosmic Jokers, Noi, Kraftwerk, and Tangerine Dream. Mark was so obsessed with this music that he decided to visit the place where it came from. When he came to Berlin what was are you able to describe it just what it looked what it looked like how it was different from from the city that you knew um, the
3: fact that it was bullet riddled and grey and rows of houses where obviously bombs had fallen and kind of destroyed the houses and so you had a lot of gaps in the, in the buildings and stuff it was like, like Manchester was a bit kind of like a bit decrepit and falling apart but Berlin was the same but bullet riddled but first let's put the picture straight This film tells of a time when we had roller discos, girls still had their pubic hair, and boys wore perms and makeup.
0: Mark loved Berlin so much that he never went home. He's lived there for more than 40 years now. A few years ago, he made a documentary about the city's music scene in the 80s. It's called B-Movie, Lust and Sound in Berlin. If you want to feel jealous of someone else's misspent youth, it's well worth watching.
3: It was a time when you could smoke in pubs and on TV. Everyone had a record player and a walkman. There were squatted houses. No hood ban, The Red Army Fraction. Packed telephone boxes. Polaroid. No dishwashers. Super 8 film. Anti-gay laws. The Deutschmark, The German Democratic Republic. The Wall. And West Berlin.
0: Mark knew everybody. He hung out with the pioneers of industrial music, the band Einstutzende Neubauten. Mark shared a squat with Nick Cave, the young Gothic eminence behind the birthday party. He stayed up late, made movies, played music, and became part of the Berlin underground. But you became a sort of connection between the Manchester scene and Berlin. From what I understand, you brought Joy Division over to Berlin. Yeah.
3: um, I convinced Joint Division to come to Berlin. I took a Ford Transit van and came from from Manchester and drove all the way down to all the way down to Berlin. Really, you know, you know, Berlin had a different attitude to what we had in Manchester. You know, Manchester, we are—you're in a punk band or you're in a band, any for any reason. It was just, just to get away. You know, if you, if you made it, you'd be able to escape miserable Manchester. Berlin was very different. Everyone had already already escaped here. It was like the place where if you were a male of, of uh, a certain age, you were obliged to go to the military. But if you lived in Berlin, you didn't have to go to the military. So if you were a pacifist or you were gay, transvestite, whatever, anything weird, you know, artist, or you just didn't want to go to the army. You know, you came to Berlin, you could live here and, and escape going to the army.
0: Because of all the countercultural refugees, the West Berlin punk scene was one of the most vibrant in the world. But Mark wasn't satisfied with knowing just the western half of his new city. Like me, he'd grown up wondering what lay on the other side of the Iron Curtain. Now he had a chance to find out. It was a completely different world on the other side of the Berlin Wall. Can you describe the experience of uh, crossing over?
3: Um, yeah, it was scary, you know, it was, it was scary. It was, it was like, because you you didn't know what to expect on the other side. It was a completely different kind of regime and everything, you know, like everything that we'd taken for granted here in the West didn't exist in the East in a sense, you know, it was like, I didn't know what I was letting myself in for, to be honest, you know, I just thought I'd just go and see what it was like. And what did you find there? I
0: thought it was, it was like stepping
3: back in time.
0: It was like a time machine. On his first trip, Mark just walked around, but he kept going back. For most of his West Berlin friends, it was an administrative hassle to get a visa to cross the border. They had to apply days or weeks in advance. But strangely enough, with Mark's British passport, he could come and go as he pleased. The fascination of that, this place,
3: you know, it was like, it was like, like, like no other place I've been to. It's like I felt there was a an ambience there that was like desperate in a sense, and I quite, I got quite addicted to that in a sense. This feeling of like
0: big brother is watching you kind of thing. Despite that, Mark got talking to other young people. And soon he had friends in East Berlin. He began to smuggle in cassettes of the music his friends were listening to and making in the West. I'd record all the records that I bought and record all, all every you know,
3: every all my record collection. As much as possible. Even later on, you know, I I, I didn't want them just to listen to punk rock. I wanted them to listen to other kinds of music as well. So I'd record like, you know, underground disco music and stuff like that as well. You know, it wasn't just about punk rock. It was about
0: everything. And how much did young people in East Berlin know about what was going on on your side of the wall?
3: Well, the the only information they really got was from TV or radio. Most of them. Uh, Not unless they had relatives who came to visit them then, then... if they had relatives then they'd get a bit more information but you know if your Auntie Betty comes to visit you you know you're not going to talk about the the punk rock scene of West Berlin because she won't know anything about that you know
0: for Mark going to East Berlin was an adventure like being in a movie for his young friends those tapes were a thread that connected them to another world in West Berlin you could go and see Joy Division or the birthday party in East Berlin youth culture was a little different
4: Message and data rates may apply. JPMorgan Chase, NA member, FDIC, 2024, JPMorgan Chase & Co. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics and the las vegas grand prix is powering race day operations with 5g connectivity giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve this is accelerating innovation with t-mobile for business take your business further at t slash now
0: recently i was in berlin and i met up with my old friend Anya, a german artist and filmmaker I first met her a while back when she lived in London. I helped out on a film she made called Trail of the Spider, a spaghetti western about gentrification, with people from our East End neighbourhood dressed up like lawmen and bandits. Anya also played in a band with some other artist friends. It was more art rock than punk, but Anya is not unpunk. Right now, she's even got kind of a mohawk haircut. I wanted Anya to come with me to a place that houses some of the most painful memories of the GDR, an office building just off Alexanderplatz, the old centre of communist East Berlin. Alex, as Berliners call it, is a big open square, dominated by the Fernsehturm, the TV tower, still the tallest structure in Germany. It's a space-age needle with a shiny ball skewered through it. It looks like a giant version of a lamp you'd see for sale in a mid-century modern furniture store, a massive symbol of the communist state's futuristic ambitions. And we're coming up to the offices of the Stasi archive. And I I have a feeling that they'll be uh, a little nervous if we record on the way in, but I don't know, maybe you know me. After the wall fell... The Stasi did its best to destroy evidence of its crimes and human rights violations, but it couldn't get rid of everything. There were millions of documents, tape recordings, piles of shredded paper. The new reunified German government set up the Stasi records archive to administrate what was left behind. People could apply to see the files that were kept on them, and in some cases find out who had been spying on them. we come to see Dagmar Hoverstadt, Who's the press spokesperson for the archive and knows more than almost anyone about the Stasi? We speak
2: but also Hi, nice to see you, nice to see you too. Hello. This is
0: my, Hi. hello. I wanted to understand more about what life in the GDR was like for young punks like Pankow. What was expected of them? Why would the government care what music they liked or how they dressed?
5: There is this idea that socialism leads to a better society, but socialism requires everybody to believe in this idea, in the way that it was um, organized. And in in this case, we're talking about Eastern European communist states, very much modeled after the Soviet idea, the Soviet um, revolution of 1917 who was always afraid that somebody will take away this this path to um, the better society. So there was from the very beginning an enemy that would squash the revolution, that would persecute the idea of a socialist society. And so you you had to be aware all the time of the enemies who are against you. Um, and, and it very much is summed up in this idea that the dissenter is the enemy.
2: The socialism gives the Jugend a gegenwart and a Zukunft, in which it is to leben and to kämpfen.
0: That's Erich Honecker, the East German leader, addressing a massive rally of the Free German Youth, the official East German Youth Organization. If you wanted to get ahead in East Germany, it was a good idea to be a member of the Free German Youth and wear their distinctive blue shirt with the sunrise emblem on the arm. Honecker is saying that only socialism can give young people a goal and a future.
5: These were state-organized youth organizations, and to refuse to become part of them already made you made you very suspicious, and you were not part of the mainstream anymore. And that would continue if you wanted to study certain wanted to study at all as a young man. You would have to uh, um, sign up for military service. That was mandatory military service. And as a young woman, if you wanted to study, for instance, journalism, it was mandatory that you would eventually join the party. So, so you'd become a candidate for the party in order to join the the party in order to study journalism.
0: That's what was on offer. To be a good East German young person, you would join the FDJ, go camping and hiking, and sing jolly songs with verses in English and Russian to show that you were a true internationalist. You wore the blue uniform shirt and clapped along because if you didn't, you weren't going to be able to have a good life. In East Germany, you had to have a job. It was illegal not to have one. But if you didn't play the game, You would just be cleaning toilets or unloading trucks. There was a real risk to being a rebel. As for music, East Germany had one record company owned and operated by the government. To be in a band and play live, you needed a license. That's right, you couldn't just go out and play a gig in a local bar. The cops would break it up and you'd get arrested. To get a license, you needed two things. You had to have done your military service and you had to pass an audition in front of a panel of judges from the Musicians' Union. And in the middle of this, imagine your panko, an angry 15-year-old who's pissed off with your violent dad and needs something, anything to happen. Otherwise, you're going to go mad. Then one day, you hear the stranglers on a bootleg cassette tape perhaps copied from a copy brought over by an English guy called Mark. You see a picture of the band, and you want to look like them, so you tear some holes in your T-shirt and walk out of your front door with your hair spiked up with soap. You go to Alexanderplatz, where you find some other kids like you. You're not doing anything, just hanging around, but the cops come and you get arrested. They ask some questions and tell you to clean yourself up. The next day, you go there again and the same thing happens. The cops are nervous because this is a tourist spot right next to the famous TV tower. The government likes foreigners to see the architectural and technological achievements of socialism. It doesn't like foreigners to see that East Germany has punks. So you end up in an interrogation room facing a guy in a uniform who wants to know if you're an enemy of the state. This was Pankow's reality. As a teenager, he ran up against the full might of the GDR. I want to go and talk to him, but he doesn't speak English and my German isn't good enough to do an interview. So I asked my artist friend, Anya if she'll come along with me.
6: They're clearly still a little bit
1: impaired. Anya. Hi.
0: Hi. Thanks for coming along. On this small adventure. So, we're on a tram traveling out of the center of Berlin northwards, and we're in the uh, district of Pankow to see somebody who's called Pankow. The neighborhood of Pankow is a little way out of the center, and it turns out neither Anya nor Oliver, the producer, have ever been there before. To me, it looks like a lot of places on the east side of the city. We get there early and it's starting to rain, so we hang around under a bus shelter like bored teenage punks. Anya and Oliver smoke cigarettes. People like to smoke in Berlin. Smoking is part of the culture, like nude sunbathing and techno music. So, yeah, this looks like not the new Berlin. This is an old, old building covered in graffiti with a sort of. Oh, messed up wooden door and no bell. So I'm going to see if it actually opens. Oh, it does. Hi there.
2: Hi. Come in.
0: Thank you. I'm Harry. Hi. Punkar turns out to be a wiry guy in his fifties. He's dressed in jeans and a hoodie, and looks more like a rock climber
2: than a rock musician. The allererste Punkmusik, die ich gehört heard waren eigentlich three LPs, die mir ein Freund in die Hand gedrückt hat. Das war Stränglers, no Heroes. The Sex Pistols with mm-hmm. Never, Never Minds the Bollocks and a German Platte from uh, Der Moderne Mann. And I heard them on the album player. They heard the, the,
0: the names of the records and, and, and they were passed around and hey, cassettes. He, he got uh, them from
6: a friend and then he copied them to cassettes and he made 180 copies of them or whatever. So and, and, and passed them on again to all his other mates.
0: Punkau had never really ventured out of his neighborhood. But somehow he found his way to the south of the city, to a youth club where some other punks hung out. I asked him how many punks there were in East Berlin at this time. About 20, he says. Soon enough, Punkau's idol was Johnny Rotten. He had a poster of him and he had the tape of Never Mind the Bollocks that he copied from his friend.
2: So the first
6: time he went to the youth club at that time, he he thought he was really punk already. But um, he was a huge fan of Udo Lindenberg. And actually he dressed like Udo Lindenberg at that point and also had this haircut and this panic belt.
0: So Udo Lindenberg is a West German rock star who circa 1980 had long hair and wore a big metal belt buckle that spelled out panic. On YouTube, you can find him doing a satirical cover of of all things, Chattanooga Choo Choo, called Special Train to Pankow. Oh, yeah. Where he's singing, for whatever reason, to a dwarf dressed as an East German railway conductor.
3: Das das
0: About how he wants to go to East Berlin to sing, if only Erich Honecker and the Communist Party would let him. The whole Udo Lindenberg thing is kind of weird and very specifically German. For our purposes, all we really need to know is that sixteen-year-old Pankow thought he was cool, but he really wasn't. Pankow dyed his hair blonde, which wasn't easy to do in East Berlin. But he'd met a hairdresser at a gay bar in Prinzlauerberg who helped him. Pankow and his friends used to hang out at this gay bar because it was one of the few places where they wouldn't get kicked out. Some of Pankow's experiences sound pretty typical for teen rebels anywhere in the world. The neighbours stared at him. His dad was angry. He got chased by football hooligans who wanted to beat him up. Since most people in East Berlin had never seen a punk, people would ask him questions on the tram. Sometimes hostile, sometimes just curious. Then he did something genuinely dangerous. He joined a band. Mm.
6: he joined a band that basically already existed but they didn't have a singer and they were called RFS like the wall and, um, but at the time they got together that name in itself already seemed too provocative and so they found a new name and they called it Planlos.
0: As I mentioned Planlos means aimless with no direction Life in the GDR was pre-programmed You studied, got a job, you retired. There's a famous English punk slogan spat out by Johnny Rotten on the song God Save the Queen. There's no future, he snarls, in England's dreaming. No future. For East German punks, it was the opposite. They had too much future. Everything was planned for them. Pankow's bandmates were friends from the little gang of punks that hung around in Alexanderplatz. Kaiser played bass. Cobbs, the guitarist, was a pretty good musician, but the drummer, Lada, couldn't really keep time and wanted to be the front man. It didn't really matter. It wasn't about getting famous or even being good musicians. Pankow and his friends wanted the unexpected. They wanted to get to a place where they knew nothing, where nothing was fixed. They wanted, as he puts it, Auf null gehen, to start again from zero. Planlos rehearsed in a coal cellar with mattresses against the walls for soundproofing. They didn't even have proper equipment. They had to plug everything into one amplifier, so the drums drowned out everything else. Of course, punkhouse band didn't have a license to perform. Even rehearsing was risky.
2: It was criminal,
0: he says bluntly. Without a license, you could be put in prison. Writing lyrics was particularly dangerous. Keeping anything on paper meant the possibility that it could be read
2: by the Stasi. Genau.
6: He was afraid from the beginning, I mean, even to the point of being paranoid. And he used to, um, like, write the songs, then immediately memorize them. And then he would burn the paper that he'd written them on. And um, actually, he would even be too paranoid to just tear it up. He literally burned it, so
0: it would be gone. The bandmates had to trust each other. Despite the risks, Planlos did perform live. Their gigs were usually very small. 20 to 30 people in cellars or abandoned buildings. They managed to get hold of a tape recorder and recorded their songs at one of their rehearsals. But Punkhouse says he's heard other recordings, live recordings that they themselves didn't make. He doesn't know who would have been able to record a Planlos gig he thinks it was most likely the Stasi. I'm waiting in line at the currywurst stand, sings Pankow, lyrics written by the guitarist Cobbs. Currywurst is one of the iconic snack foods of Berlin, slices of sausage slathered in a very mild spicy ketchup. Calling it curry is kind of overstating the case, but whatever. Punks in line for a snack. I don't turn around, he sings. I've already seen you. You are my shadow wherever I go, a dark spot on the sun. He's singing, of course, about his Stasi tale. Sometimes they'd follow him without doing anything. Sometimes they'd just shove him in the back of a car and take him in for interrogation. And so, here we are with the teenage punk and the secret policeman staring at each other across the table. Punkau's interrogator belongs to a unit called Abteilung Department 20, whose special remit is political dissent. Punkau has begun to realise the Stasi are desperate for information. They've been completely blindsided by Punk. For more than 10 years in East Germany, there have been what they call blusers Long-haired kids who listen to rock music and go hitchhiking. Hitchhiking being one of the many things that is illegal in this country. But punk is different. They're not just hippies. They seem to be rejecting every kind of authority. Who or what is behind them? Could it be Western intelligence agencies? Are Planlos and the 20 East Berlin punks all working for the CIA? Other
6: punks wouldn't necessarily talk, or they would have no interest to have a conversation with the guy from the Stasi. But the person from the Stasi that was always having the, the conversations with him, or the interrogations, he would literally tell his superiors, "Here is someone that actually really um, wants to engage, and also I think ultimately we can win him over to work for us as a informal Mitarbeiter."
0: The phrase is actually inoffizielle Mitarbeiter unofficial co-worker. This is the Stasi's name for informers. On the street, they're called spitzlan or snitches. When they wanted you to work with them, what did they suggest? Did they offer you money, or is it? did they threaten you? How did they try and persuade you to become an EM?
2: He would be
6: arrested every two days, probably. Um, but for him, as... Nobody, and then later on, as a singer of, uh, or was the singer in Planlos? Yeah, as a singer of Planlos, it was uh, first of all he felt sort of somehow affirmed by it. They were taking him serious. They felt threatened by him, and for him, the conversations that he had with them were also a kind of um, they were schooling him in some way. in du hast
0: this is where it gets really strange the police would just come and break heads they just wanted the punks off the street and they didn't care how it happened but the Stasi were more like son you're going down the wrong path and inadvertently they were giving this scrappy kid a political education
2: Und für mich waren sozusagen die Interviews immer insofern zweigeteilt. Ähm, also ich dachte immer, ich agitiere diesen Genossen da. Also er hat mich ja sozusagen...
6: Okay, so like at first, he just, he felt more like an agitator in that situation. I mean, he knew he had to be careful um, what to say, because he knew that he could go to prison if he said anything against the state. So it was clear that that was a fine line. But at the same time, he felt that he's sort of somehow also in the process of convincing this Stasi guy.
0: It may have been fun for a while, but the stakes were getting higher. Finally, they asked him outright whether he was willing to become an informer. He refused. After that, it was clear that the Stasi were going to find a way to get him sooner or later. And they did. It all happened because of a t-shirt. Pankow's girlfriend, who went by the nickname NASA or Nose, made him a shirt with a political quote on it. When injustice becomes law, resistance is a duty. That's essentially a massive subtweet of the East German government. And in case it wasn't provocative enough, the t-shirt also had the logo of the terrorist group, the Red Army Faction. Not only did Pankow go out wearing this shirt, he wore it to a big meeting where foreign journalists were present. And he got up on a chair and gave a speech. He was immediately pulled down and arrested. He faced almost three years in prison. That was when the Stasi turned up the heat.
2: They
6: got his girlfriend to come in and they said, uh, your boyfriend's going to prison for three years if you don't work with us. So then she agreed to work with them um, and it was quite clear to her that she would not give them any information, but that she was uh, trying to save him from going to prison for three years.
0: This was a dangerous game, but it worked. Thinking they'd recruited Naza, the Stasi, let Pankow go. Pankow and his girlfriend didn't want to give the Stasi any real information. As soon as they got back to their friends, They told them about the deal they'd made. Pankow trusted his girlfriend, but the other members of Planlos weren't so sure. She'd agreed to work for the Stasi. The members of Planlos had good reason to be paranoid. The Stasi weren't just watching people and raiding apartments. They were also trying to undermine the punks psychologically, trying to get into their heads.
5: Information gathering on them is just not enough. You want to destroy what they start forming. So the Stasi, especially in the 70s and 80s, came up with a methodology they called Zersetzung, demolition of personality.
0: This is Dagmar Hovestadt again at the Stasi archives.
5: So all the information you gather on a very individual, sometimes intimate level about a person, you would use to debase their their sense of self and th- their security in and of themselves, and so this Zersetzungsstrategy strategy. Meant that you would start spreading rumors about a person. Coincidentally, or rather not coincidentally, one of uh, a more effective rumor was to say that that person was an informant for the Stasi. In uh, more extreme cases, the Stasi used to uh, raid the apartments of a person and they did little psychological things. They would change around the towel that you were certain to have put to the right side of the sink. And when you came home, it was on the left side of the sink. And you would just think, what happened here? And you would, you know, it's so minimal. It's just a banal little thing. But they start messing with your sense of self, your sense of security, who you are.
0: The Stasi were using the Zezet song strategy on the punk scene, and it worked. Everyone was paranoid. The members of planlos stopped trusting each other Finally, Pankow's friends gave him an ultimatum drop his girlfriend or leave the band. Pankow told them to go fuck themselves. Though the Stasi never managed to turn Pankow, they got their way in the end. The first East Berlin punk band was dead.
1: a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com business podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase Mobile App is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. JPMorgan Chase Bank, NA Member, FDIC, Copyright 2024. JPMorgan Chase & Co.
4: The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now.
0: I got interested in the Stasi in 2016 when I took my family to live in Berlin for six months. I'd been offered a fellowship at the American Academy, an institution out in the far western suburb of Wannsee. I was going to spend my time researching and writing the book that eventually became Red Pill. There are all sorts of practical issues when you move to another country. My wife Katie is also a writer. Our son was two when she was pregnant with our daughter. We needed to find a preschool somewhere close to where we'd be living. I went online to look, hopeful that I'd find something in walking distance. I found a couple of possible places, then I went on Street View to look at them. To my surprise, they were blurred out. German law requires Google to blur out Street View images if people request it. Germany has some of the strongest privacy laws in the world. Germans don't like sharing their personal information. They don't like being tracked online. Dagmar Hoverstadt of the Stasi archives says this is the legacy both of communism and the Nazis.
5: The idea that a citizen is sort of corrupted through the state and that the balance between the individual and the state, between who I am as a citizen and what the state as my government does to me and how we interact is much more fraught from the history. And so there's a larger sensitivity of how we balance ideas of security, and privacy of the individual and the state and how we come to a compromise between our respective spheres.
0: We tend to think of privacy as the right not to be watched or overheard and also the ability to keep control of our personal information. But it's more than that. Privacy is the space where we can experiment. The space where we work out how to be ourselves before we have to step out into the social world. Emily Dickinson called it a finite infinity, and it's true there's something sublime about it, something that makes it very disturbing to us when it's violated. Sooner or later, in any conversation about privacy, someone will say, why do you care if you've got nothing to hide? Why should we care? The philosopher and Trappist monk Thomas Merton, who thought about privacy very deeply, wrote this. In actual fact... Society depends for its existence on the inviolable personal solitude of its members. Society, to merit its name, must be made up not of numbers or mechanical units, but of persons. To be a person implies responsibility and freedom, and both these imply a certain interior solitude, a sense of personal integrity, a sense of one's own reality, and of one's ability to give himself to society, or to refuse that gift. He's saying that without privacy, without the ability to make basic decisions for yourself, society couldn't exist. Unless you have freedom to act, and can take responsibility for your actions, you're not human in society, you're just a function, a cog in a totalitarian machine. Perhaps that's why so many Germans ask for their homes to be blurred out on Google Street View. Right now, with eavesdropping home devices and a tracker in every phone, privacy is under threat like never before. We have an unfocused paranoia about corporations and the government, but we're never sure who exactly is listening to us, whether they're really paying attention or what their agenda might be. That wasn't true during the Cold War. The citizens of East Germany knew who was watching. The Ministry for State Security, the Stasi.
5: But I also think that once you grow up in a system like that and you befriend yourself with the thought that the state that I live in shoots me if I travel west, and if I speak my mind completely, I might run into trouble. Okay, so I better just, I just better give them what they want and so I can be left in peace and I just do my thing and I have a normal life and celebrate my birthdays and uh, my Christmases and my little career. Everything is fine, but you have voluntarily limited the space you're entitled to. And I think that's a long lasting effect.
0: After the Stasi broke up planlos, Pankow didn't join another band. Reluctantly, he went off to do his military service. When he returned to Berlin 18 months later, his friends had scattered. Some were in prison or the army. Some had gone to the West. He felt out of place
2: again. The East German government said tonight they were going to make more openings in the wall, at least a dozen more. Put bulldozers right through the wall so that more people could cross to the West.
0: When the wall came down in 1989, Pankow had mixed feelings. He was excited to see the East German regime falling, but he was also worried about the prospect of joining the capitalist West. I wanted to know if he was still worried, if he was concerned about all the ways which we can now be or feel watched.
2: I mean, I think he,
6: he says he thinks it's frightening, but at the same time it's something that he knows very well. So in that sense, he never had a moment where he had any kind of illusions about that it would be different.
0: Can someone who spent his youth being watched by the most paranoid secret police force in history tell me what to do about today's pervasive surveillance? I'm expecting Pankow to condemn it, to say that we need to fight governments and tech companies. Instead, he says to me, sure, you can spend a lot of time focusing on the idea that you're being surveilled, figuring out exactly how much. But that always puts you into a sort of negative frame of mind. You feel hopeless. He lived for years knowing he was being watched night and day. Now, he says, it's important to make a clear choice. Do you stay inside your fear or do you push through? Do you put fear in its place? and start making decisions for yourself. And this is the thing I go away with as I ride the tram back to the center of Berlin. That you don't wait to act until you feel you're free to do so. It's the action that you take in spite of your fear that counts. That's what it means to be punk. Turns out, Johnny Rotten was wrong. For punk musicians like Pankow and surveillers like the Stasi, there would be a future. Specifically in Hanover, where another German is about to engineer how the future, our present, will sound. And as a listener, you also recognize the tension between these two things. You recognize
3: that if it, that it's the patterns that you sense that make
0: it beautiful, and it's also the fact that the patterns do not repeat themselves perfectly that make it exquisitely beautiful. Finding the needle of a signal in a haystack of noise. That's next week on Into the Zone. Into the Zone is produced by Ryder Alsop and Hunter Braithwaite. Our editor is Julia Barton. Mia LaBelle is our executive producer. Martin Gonzalez is our engineer. Music for this episode composed by Izzy Ocampo, also known as Student. Our theme song is composed by Sarah K. Pedinotti, also known as Lip Talk. Thanks to Jacob Weisberg, Heather Fain, John Schnars, Maya Koenig, Carly Migliori, Eric Sandler, Emily Rostick, and Maggie Taylor. Special thanks to our Berlin producers, Oliver Martin, and Johannes Nickelman. And a very special thanks to Anja Kirchner for all her help with this episode. To hear what Mark Reeder is up to now, go to www.mfsberlin.com. An archive of Pankow's material can be found at substitute.net. Into the Zone is a production of Pushkin Industries. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider letting others know. The best way to do this is by rating us on Apple Podcasts. You could even write a review. For more East German punk, head to our Into the Zone playlist on Spotify. And you can find me on Twitter at Harikunzri. See you next time. <laughs>
4: That? What was wrong with that? What was wrong with that? What
2: was wrong